This is the story of any day in Newcastle. Newcastle is 100 miles north of Sydney at the mouth of the Hunter River. It's one of the busiest ports in the country. Hello, I'm Carol Duncan and welcome to the Lost Newcastle podcast. With more than 70,000 members, Lost Newcastle has become the online meeting place for generations of Novocastrians, sharing photos, stories, finding lost friends and loved ones, and learning plenty of new things about this place we call home. Whether you're a local, an expat, or new to Newcastle, grab a cuppa and enjoy. Ruth Cotton is well known to many in Newcastle for her huge body of local history work on the multicultural hub of Hamilton. Her Hidden Hamilton blog began as a way for her to find out more about the suburb that she was moving to from northern New South Wales. Hundreds of stories and two books later, Ruth is still just as passionate about her adoptive home. But Ruth has released a new book, a memoir called A Fragile Hold, which details her 1997 diagnosis with multiple sclerosis and the changes to her life from that point. In 2020, just as the pandemic locked us in our homes with huge uncertainty, Ruth's husband became unwell. But let's hear from Ruth. Ruth Cotton, thank you so much for joining me for a Lost Newcastle podcast. My pleasure, Carol. Thank you for asking me. Has your journey from a young girl and woman to becoming an established author been something that you imagined? I didn't imagine it at all. I had no intention of becoming a writer, but it was just something that evolved as I felt I needed to put things down on paper, and that stayed with me most of my life, from writing journals to writing books. And two aspects of that um, are something that are perhaps well known to people Uh, mostly in Newcastle now, one being the series of of work and research and publication that you've done for Hidden Hamilton, but also now your very personal memoir. Yes, um, I had really no intention of writing a book. It was the, during the pandemic, really what it had just been announced and I was feeling really overwhelmed and stressed. And once again, I turned to writing to get control of my emotions and feelings and to cope better. At the, at the same time also, a big thing was happening in our lives because my husband's cancer was continuing to spread. It had been diagnosed many years before. And I felt that I had control over many small things, but not over the really big unknowns in my life. And so I set myself a goal of writing three micro-essays each month about my experiences, my everyday experiences. And then two years later, I had 80 of them on my computer and I learned from my readers that I had something that would resonate more widely. So I sat down and started to form it into a book. You mentioned using that writing and journaling as a little way of coping with the the stresses that and strains that you were feeling of COVID, of the pandemic and, and lockdown. I think it's really interesting the different tools that we all use to get through any sort of stress, mental health issues and pressures, let alone COVID. I often relate, though, the experiences that I know so many people had during the pandemic of how important being creative was for them. And if they hadn't considered themselves creative beforehand, all of a sudden, I think a lot of us were feeling like we had to do something. We couldn't go to the shops, we couldn't go to the beach. Uh, So people learned how to make sourdough bread 
Or they, they learned how to draw or numerous other things. Um, and for you, it was to take to writing. Yes. And there were some other things that helped me as well during the pandemic. One of the things I noticed was that I turned to what was close to me. And so I turned to my family, I turned to my local friends, I turned um, to my neighbourhood. And when I was researching Hidden Hamilton quite a few years ago now, I got to know a lot of the buildings around the place and it seemed like they were old friends because as I went past them on my mobility scooter, it was if, if I knew their whole life, their whole past. And so that gave me a sense of connection. And really in Hamilton, all my life needs are within range of my mobility scooter, whether I'm going to a cafe or the grocer or the optometrist or the pharmacist or whatever. And that network was really important to me during the pandemic as we went through and it was much more difficult to uh, go out and about beyond our neighbourhood. How much of a change was it though, Ruth, writing about buildings and places and the people who may have gone with them to writing about Ruth Cotton? Well, I'd always kept a journal, so that was always Ruth Cotton's life. Um, through many decades, I, I kept journals. And in my memoir, I, wrote, I write about getting rid of those journals um, because of all the stuff that we tend to collect. Writing about Ruth Cotton was good. The decision to publish a book was another decision altogether. But I thought that I have gained so much from other people who've written about multiple sclerosis, written about their lives, written about often quite challenging experiences they've had, and that I could share, give some windows into my own often boring everyday life, but it's life with, with a chronic condition. And especially I would like that book to reach friends and relatives of people with MS, because I think there's lots of information out there today about MS. But having a window into someone's life, their everyday life, is not so common. And that's really what I'm doing in this memoir. Let's do a brief explanation for people who may have heard of MS, but have no real idea of, of what it is and how it affects your body. Okay. Multiple sclerosis is a chronic neurological disease and it affects women more than men. It's also known as an autoimmune disease because the body the body's immune system attacks itself. And in MS, that's very specific because it take, attacks the myelin sheath that uh, insulates the nerve. And so when that myelin sheath is damaged, the messages don't get through. So in my case, the myelin sheath in my spinal cord is damaged. And so messages don't get through to my legs to walk. And that's how eventually I, you know, I came to lose my mobility. Other instances that can happen is that um, the messages to the bladder and the bowel get affected, and that's pretty serious, or to your hands or wherever. And the thing about MS is that it's unpredictable, and that's one of the most difficult things to live with, that throughout your life you don't really know where it's going to strike and what part of your body is going to be affected. The good news is that since I was diagnosed in 1997, there are many more treatments. There's still no cure, um, but there are treatments that can um, delay the onset of disability. And another interesting fact is that uh, MS um, 
is most common in people between 20 and 40 years of age. That's when they tend to be diagnosed. And that's a time when people are raising families, forging their careers, paying off their mortgages, and to have one member of, the, of, of a partnership struck with this disease makes it very, very challenging indeed. You mentioned, Ruth, that it has manifested in you, in your mobility and your ability to walk, and you've also mentioned some of the other ways that it can affect people. Uh, I had no idea of the other areas that you mentioned, but of course it makes sense when you describe it. Anywhere a nerve goes, early in my 50s I had an attack on my optic nerve and I woke up one morning to go to work and I couldn't see. I could see a little bit, but my vision really was impaired for a couple of weeks. That was absolutely terrifying because I wasn't sure whether it would come back, but it did. You also talked about your husband's cancer. And so you've had a lot going on over the last few years, Ruth, to put it mildly. Uh, what are the uncertainties uh, Uncertainties that you refer to? Is this just, you know, the, the day-to-day surprises, shocks of ageing, or uh, what are the things that you consider in that mix of uncertainties? Well, certainly ageing is one of those, and I, I think that having a chronic condition, whether it's long COVID or some other autoimmune disease or MS, Combined with ageing makes it doubly, doubly challenging. And, you know, we've touched, we've touched on these, but for instance, I've got mobility issues and that happened. My mobility was most affected when not long after I came to Newcastle and not long after I, fe- I met you, in fact, I, I was walking. Um, and then 2015, 2016, suddenly, quite suddenly, the trajectory was downhill and within a year, you know, I was using a walker and a mobility scooter and I had to give up my licence and so on. In relation to my husband, he'd been diagnosed with melanoma in 2009, that's 13 or 14 years ago, and at first it moved quite slowly, um, but it did keep coming back and was treated with surgery. Again, in the last couple of years that I wrote about in my memoir, his melanoma came back in a fairly big way because it appeared in his brain not just once, but twice, and he had to have two operations during the pandemic when it was not really a good idea to go to hospital unless Mm. you actually had to. So we've had to face the prospect of his mortality, how long he's got to live, where his melanoma might strike next, because that's a little bit like MS, only a different causation, how he might be affected, when it would strike him, and what might be his future care needs. And of course, the coronavirus pandemic itself was a big uncertainty in everybody's lives. And with the progression of your own illness, yes. your own care needs. Yes, and my own care needs. That's How right. do you feel at the moment? Do you feel like the supports that are necessary for you both will be in place? I do. Um, and I've got very good external support to help me in the house and in the garden and uh, with transport. And we are very, very lucky in Australia to have the, the, the support that we get. Um, Another thing I really strive to do is to, um, and I've written about this in my memoir, is to keep stuff out of the way, to try and keep my house as uh, free of excess stuff as possible and to simplify my garden because if I've got to walk about in the house, I don't want to be falling over things and having accidents. In fact, once I had quite a, a bad fall out of my home elevator and uh, crashed into my office floor 
and got a very bad black eye, but that was all. It was just a matter of my elevator stopping um, a couple of centimetres above where it was supposed to stop. It was a minor fault. And I just stepped out happily thinking it was stopped where it always stopped, but it didn't. And uh, so those things can happen out of the blue and there's some of the uncertainties that strike us. Home elevator can sound like a bit of a luxury, but it would appear to me that whenever possible, obviously helping people to age in place, age in their own homes is the ideal for people to be in their familiar environments with the the things and the people that they love is what we should be trying to support for everybody. That's exactly right. And and while it did seem a luxury at the time, um, moving house was quite an expensive option. And in fact, living in Hamilton, we are really well established because We've got everything is flat for a start, and so it's easy to get around. Our house uh, has got a, ga- a garage where you can just drive straight into the garage, or I can come into the garage in my mobility scooter and go straight into the house. It's all flat again, and there's plenty of space, and it, that's important, I guess, to for all sorts of reasons. To have, if you're going to be confined indoors um, a lot. It's really nice to have the space. Ruth Cotton's memoir is called A Fragile Hold, Living with Multiple Sclerosis and Other Uncertainties. Do you think that COVID and, and three years of the uncertainty of all of that has also encouraged you to psychologically declutter? I do. And that's a constant battle. One of the things that I've written about in my memoir a bit is about friendships because we tend to accumulate a lot of friends in our life and when you acquire something like a chronic condition or cancer or even long COVID or something, you learn who can really support you. And not everybody knows how to support someone with a chronic condition. So the worst thing... Um, experience a person who's ill can have is is pity, I think. Whereas a person who really knows how to support you will just be there for you and maybe they'll be, bring you a flower in a pot or, or, or some other very, very simple thing. And I feel that friendships are a little bit like a garden. Um, we need to look after them. Um, we need to water and fertilise them but we also sometimes need to weed them. And I think with a chronic condition, one finds that some old friends just fade into the distance. They can't cope with you being different or ill. Other friends that perhaps were not necessarily particularly close to you through your life, step forward and you can have really wonderful late flowering friendships with those people. So that's what I mean when I say a bit of weeding happens. It happens sort of naturally, but you can't... I can't cope with everything. I can't cope with everything that's happening in my life and keep up with everybody who might want to be in contact and the level of contact that they might want. So all that happens, that adjustment can happen in a natural way. Yeah, I find the the best friends are the ones who you can pick up a conversation with at any point down the exactly. track and it's as if nothing ever happened in yes, between. that's right. Yes. No matter what happened in between. <laughs> Let's talk about the local history side of this um, and of your story because you are not a native Novocastrian, are you? No. Um, We moved to Newcastle 10 years ago and uh, the only person I knew in Newcastle was my daughter and her family. And so for the first couple of years, I used all my spare time finding out about the suburb that I'd come to live in, which happened to be Hamilton. 
So I came into the library, um, read lots of stuff, and uh, then I started to talk to people. And eventually I thought, if this is so hard for me to do, um, then maybe I should try and capture it again. We're back to this old issue we were talking about before of writing. Maybe I better write it down and share it with someone, and uh, that might be helpful in general. So that's how I started my blog, my Hidden Hamilton blog, and then eventually out of that came two books. So I'm not a native Novocastrian, but I do find that Novocastrians have values that I really identify with and I feel at home here. And thanks to all the work I do and have done for Hidden Hamilton, I have a real sense of belonging here. And in my memoir, um, particularly because it's about my everyday experience, places in Hamilton and people in Hamilton pop up quite often. Mm. And I'm pleased to say that everyone who appears in my book gave me their permission to be there. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone in Ruth's book is a real character. (laughs) And they're all important to the social fabric of my life because Mm. going back to what we're saying about the pandemic and being isolated... We still were able to go about a lot of our daily life, in limited and wearing masks and so on, but meeting someone, even if it was someone in Nina's IGA stacking the shelves whom I'd got to know over the years, that's an important interaction. And I learned that many of those small, close interactions took on a much greater meaning for me during the pandemic. And that's how I learned, I suppose, to live life with a focus on what was close and to have a more mindful approach to the things that were happening to me. Have you always had an interest in history or local history or family history? Not really, no. I worked in the health sector and um, I don't know where this interest in history came from, but it just popped up when I came to Newcastle. (laughs) Perhaps I could ask you the same thing. (laughs) I I actually have, yes, yeah, I think um, my interest in, in history stems from not really having known any of my grandparents. And so, therefore, for me, from a very young age, the question was, well, who who am I and where do I come from? And who made me? Yes. What made me? So, yeah, I'm one of those nerds that got stuck into the family history (laughs) at a very young age, which is not the norm, and I acknowledge that. Mm. That's right. What's become the fashion now certainly wasn't then. Mm. And I think for people to share their stories, like you have done, Ruth, not just with Hidden Hamilton but with your memoir as well, is so incredibly important in giving us a sense of place, a sense sometimes of purpose as well, and a sense of shared experience. And I note your comments about popping into Nina's IGA in Hamilton and if it's just someone who is working in the store during a time of of crisis like the pandemic. And I don't think it is until years down the track that we will look back and realise how awful it was for many, many, many people. That sense of not being isolated, even if you are at home on your own, Mm. if you still feel like you have those connections somewhere out there, then you're not alone. That's right. So Hidden Hamilton takes off and your lack of interest in history... (laughs) <laughs> becomes a monster. Well, it took over my life for about three years and then I tried to extricate myself from it, which wasn't all that easy. I noticed that. You failed terribly. <laughs> <laughs> because I did have other things to go on to. One of the things that I felt some urgency about was writing my own family history. And um, in 2017, I did that. And uh, we can talk more about that later, if you like. But 
so after my second book came out in 2016, in 2017, I got onto my own family history and did that within, within 12 months. But then what I've found is that as the years go by, people still come to me about Hidden Hamilton, even though I've got rid of many of my papers, research papers and all these things, somebody else has taken up, is taking up the baton and doing something new. And so they want to come and say, talk about Hidden Hamilton. And I have to say that uh, when they see the hidden, one of the Hidden Hamilton books and look at the richness of the resources there, which astounds even myself, I don't know quite how I did it, <laughs> um, and all the wonderful images there and the stories there from the people of Hamilton, they are amazed. So I realised that, you know, I've done something pretty nice there. And that, for, for many of the people that participated in, is a kind of scaffolding. The same as Lost Newcastle is a, is a scaffolding in people's lives because what we reminisce about, what we remember, we look at photos, we look at letters, we look at objects, and those memories help us give meaning to our lives. And I think that what the Lost Newcastle page does is provide that scaffolding so that we can get perspective, we can look out and see the wonderful view of our lives, we can see where we've come from, we can see where we've been, what we've been through, all the things that we've endured in life. And that's something that happens as we get older. One of the things I love most about Lost Newcastle, I love the photographs and I love the stories, but I love the reunions. I love people uh, who have found each other again yes. for the first time in decades, yes. whether it was the two little girls who were in kindergarten together in the 1940s who've now reconnected, true story. Lost family members, new family members. Yes. I love that. That's everything. I know, and that's that's something that really can't be taken away, that that meaning that has been given to somebody's life. And I'm sure thousands of people are thanking you right this moment, Carol. <laughs> <laughs> they just keep contributing, and that's the really important part of that. Yeah. But I think your senses in when you were starting to research that new suburb that you had moved into, Hamilton, what is this place, where have I landed, your instinct to preserve your own research was not only right but incredibly important. Yes, and so the blog is out there still and we still maintain it, although I don't add to it. And that's also um, preserved in the um, Pandora National Archives. Um, and the books are there, but those things eventually will disappear. Print will eventually disappear. Cyberspace moves on very rapidly. Um, but I like the things that have happened in Hamilton's streets since I did all that basic research and, and communicated it. Um, for instance, we've got 22 blue and white heritage plaques. Now, they could be upgraded any time, but they're there. So people walk about the streets. They can read something about the building, the people, the social history in, on one of those plaques. So that's there. As well, there's work being done on the upgrading of the James Street Plaza, as you well know, mm. and with references to some of its history. And there's a heritage walk that's been put onto a mobile phone app. So I really like it when things then get embedded in, a, in the built environment in a way that, that is lasting. And then we'll just have to leave it to people that come after us to say, well, this needs to be modernised or this needs to be done differently, let's have a go. But the basic history is there. And while 
people like Peter Murray did wonderful basic histories of Hamilton. What I did was to make it into stories and to communicate it and to make contact with people who were still alive and get them to add their voice to it and to and to get out those wonderful photos out of the shoeboxes so they could be published. And that was the essence of Lost Newcastle. The photos in the shoebox that when your grandmother dies will just yep. go to the rubbish dump if nobody has any context yes. for them and that's a tragedy. I'm going to take you back to James Street Plaza for a little bit because I learned a lot. I've been in Newcastle for 30 years this year. I think I'm almost local. Although some people say, Carol, you don't have two grandparents buried at Sandgate so you will never <laughs> be a local. Um, we can argue about that till the cows come home. But there was so much that I learned about Hamilton through the work that you contributed to that revitalisation of James Street Plaza. And one of the stories that I loved, which included uh, when we reopened the Plaza, the descendants and some of the family members of a small Italian town. That town or village was Letapalena in the central it- Italy in the Abruzzo region. During World War II, it became a casualty of the war and people were forced out of their village. They were forced out of the village and had to, in the middle of winter, and had to undertake this this terrible walk through the snow to the next town. And they tried to go back to their village because it was their home, but every time they went back to their village, they were chased out again. Now, many of those people from Letopolina came to Australia as migrants, and first they went to the young men mostly, went to the sugarcane farms. But then if that didn't really that work really didn't suit them in Queensland, they migrated down to Newcastle where there was work um, with the BHP. Chain migration works by way of word of mouth. And so when one family came, another family came, and then another family, and then another young man, and people took their friends and family connections in as boarders once they had a house here in Newcastle. Now that um, I think the figure is about 139 families from Letopalena village established in and around Hamilton in the 50s and 60s. And they are really part of our amazing heritage. When I walk around the streets, I see somebody, I see a gentleman or a woman, and I say, I know where you're from, you're from Letopalena, because the facial features and so on are so similar. And those people have so much courage and so much determination and they came with no skills uh, and they made new lives for themselves and now they live in beautiful houses in Hamilton or Adamstown or wherever and they can be really proud of what they've done. And if you're lucky, you'll find one who'll invite you in for a homemade coffee. (laughs) (laughs) I love, though, how you still see so many of the of the uh, multicultural characters and families, um, people of Hamilton, still very actively living their lifestyles in the street, like the, the two tables of gentlemen who set up at opposite ends of the street for their hours and hours of conversation and coffee. I love them to bits. Yes. And that, that's a very European tradition because people tend to live in smaller houses, apartments, and the women like the men to get out of the house. <laughs> so where else do you see groups of men clustered around a coffee table, you know, only in multicultural suburbs where the women have chased them out so they can do the cooking or whatever. And uh, men like to get around and probably tell the same stories over and over again around their coffee. But it's a really healthy thing, I think. Ruth, do you, uh, does your own family have any links to this region? 
Very surprisingly, they do. And I didn't discover this until 2017 when I said I, I started my writing my own family history. And the focus of that originally was on my paternal grandfather, who was an early settler and on land up between Narrabri and Bingra. And he was a big influence on my life, and I mention this in, in my memoir. But the connection with a hunter is actually on my mother's side and my great-great-grandfather, whose name was John Stringer, came out from Ireland as a 20-year-old young man, a bit like these Italian uh, young men we were talking of. Mm. He couldn't read or write. He was recruited to work in the AA company. And I didn't know anything about the AA company until I started researching Hidden Hamilton. And especially I was amazed by its reach and its power and also the conflict it had with its workers. So my great great-grandfather John Springer spent much of his life working for the AA company as a farm labourer and in particular he was a sheep washer. Now have you ever heard of this <laughs> job but it is, must be the most one of the most arduous back-breaking jobs. It's not one I think I like to do. <laughs> because it's done knee-deep in water. Every sheep before they were shorn had to be scrubbed white and poor John Stringer and many others would be knee-deep in these water holes in a creek while presumably someone channeled the sheep to them and then they, they scrubbed them. But John, John Stringer had nine children. He married, of course, had nine children. And then there was nothing... I guess they've settled all over the Hunter region and around Tamworth and so on where they worked. I'd, I, there was no further connection for me with the Hunter until my daughter moved here mm. and then we moved here to follow her. And then there was a Dungog connection because my sister married into a very established farming family um, at Dungog, the Tickles. Um, so it seemed to me that there was perhaps some ancestral pull going on here that drew some of us back to an area that we didn't think we had any connection with at all. Same, I thought my family was Sydney through and through. And then all of a sudden, they popped up all over this region. <laughs> It's, it's wonderful. It's and I look forward to learning more about them as well and sharing some of their uh, Newcastle immigrant stories yes. uh, uh, coming here. How do you feel about that connection? Does it feel like it makes sense to you to find that you do actually have this ancestral root here of some sort? It does, um, because it's like the closing of a circle. And uh, that great-great-grandfather I mentioned to you, he came from Ireland in advance of the potato famine and we've all heard so much about that. And so there's a lot of humility in the stories of both the uh, European migrants and the migrants that came out here to, to establish Newcastle, the, the convicts and all the others that came. It's a very humble characteristic, I think, that still can be found in people today. And when I said earlier that um, I felt some identity with the values of Novocastrians, I think there's something of that humility that's still there among people today. And one of the things that I've noticed is the way grandparents are regarded, that um, grandparents, there's a really high value placed on grandparents in Newcastle. And as an older person going about the place, I never experience any disrespect, quite the opposite, just from people that I bump into, younger people, 
students, whatever. And I think there's something that's been imbued in people growing up that we experience, which is really nice. What's next, Ruth? I can't imagine you not doing something. I see you out with your scooter constantly. (laughs) I cannot imagine you being idle for a moment. I think I'll do some more writing. And the next stage of my life is going to be interesting because um, like a lot of older people my age, we face the prospect of what housing decisions we're going to make. You know, if, if, we, if I lose my husband, what implications that go, is that going to have for me? Uh, I'm very keen on making good life decisions and, um, and think it's important that we know how to make a good life decision. So depending on what decisions I face, I might do some writing about that. The photographs that you've shared through your book are everything from little young Ruth to Ruth now. What would you say to Ruth on the horse, young Ruth on the horse, way back when? I'd want her to know that whatever life you dream for yourself, it's going to be full of surprises. And what your life's really going to be about is adapting to those surprises. And many of them will be wonderful Some of them won't be so good, but you will learn lots of interesting things along the way. Who do you want to read the book, Ruth? Who do I want to read my memoir? Mm. Especially relatives and friends of people who are suffering from a chronic condition, um, who may have a disability, who may be facing challenges in their lives. So those people themselves will get something from the book as well, I'm sure, but I particularly want to target relatives and friends and family of people who are going through these challenging times. And how can people get their hands on a copy? My book's available for sale at Maclean's in Hamilton, at Harry Hartog's in Kotara, and online at Amazon, Booktopia, all those various Oh, fantastic. All right, I'll make sure I pop all those links on. And it's available in e-book form for as little as $7 and in print version too. Okay. Wonderfully accessible for everybody. (laughs) Ruth Cotton, thank you so much. I have loved the occasions on which I've been able to do a little bit of work with you in the city because you are a genuine community contributor. If you see something, you say something. And that's really important. That's how we get to make things better for everybody. So thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thank you, Carol. I've enjoyed it too. Do you have a lost Newcastle story to tell? Get in touch. I'm Carol Duncan and you can be part of the story too at lostnewcastle.com.au or join us on Facebook and Instagram.